severely annoyed right now yeah i feel you can see it on your face what can you do you know suck it up buttercup let's have a good night (laughs) what is going on that's what i'm hoping for i'm hoping for a good night man so many things are going on but uh you know i just wanted to remind anyone who might be with us tonight that uh, first of all thank you for being with us glad to have you glad to have you but if you're not listening to us on a podcasting 2.0 live item tag compatible app what are you doing what are you doing? If you don't have Podverse or CurioCaster, two apps which you could be listening to us on right now, well, you got homework for next week. And I think one of them even has a web app, right? Like, is it CurioCaster? Is it That's only right. a web app or it's also a web app? It's only a web app. I just popped up, popped up. I just popped up CurioCaster and it says live Saturday night lit. And it's got an image and everything. It's beautiful. There you go. So, you know, get on it, people. This is the future. The future is now. There's a little interesting thing going on at uh, one of our favorite podcasts, the No Agenda Show, and you kind of hit me up today and you were like, so they've been going on for 15 years and on Thursday, they're going to have their 1500th episode and they got a special promotion right now. So they're giving people double credits. So the way that that show works is that if you give them... Is it $150 to become an associate executive producer? A hundred and uh, it's 330 regular, so it's 165 now. Yeah, but I'm saying, so there's two levels. There's executive producer and oh, there's associate know. executive producer. So anyway, so if you, if you donate a certain amount of money to them, they'll like read your name on the show and they're giving you double credit. So like they'll give you a Count it for $2 for every $1 you give them. So you suckered me into giving them $165 so I could get that $330 executive producer credit, get my name read. Oh, they're probably going to read it as primitive one. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's not even going to say it properly. They prim, never do. Pr- prim, pr- a primitive one? <clears throat> primitive. 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 Anyway, so uh, we'll see. Hopefully that goes well. Um, you should have put from Loxahatchee, Florida. Let's see how he pronounces that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I've listened to that show for years. I've listened to hundreds of episodes at this point. So it just seemed appropriate if I was going to get two for one credit, I'd just suck it up and give them my credit card. I didn't even have to have pay in cash. That That's great. I didn't even have to say much. You did it. Yeah. I, I didn't do it myself, but at least you did. <laughs> yeah. I should have called you out as a douchebag. I made an effort. But right? it, it would be inappropriate for me to call you out as a douchebag because we've had two of our songs featured on their show yeah and we could actually play one today we played one the last time but we could play the other one why is there a nude woman on your screen or partially nude that's just twitter what are you gonna do okay well now that elon's here he'll clean all of that up oh man like twitter has just been going nuts people have just been posting things for the sake of posting it um I mean, just repeating this in public. One of the ones I saw today that I was like, oh, come on, people. Joe Biden is a pedophile. <laughs> and it's just someone retweeting someone else having said that. I'm like, yeah, okay. I guess uh, I guess this is the new Twitter. This is the new standard of, uh, <laughs> of entertainment and information and news. And 
the new world. So I guess it's going to get really crazy for a little bit, but it's got to level out at some point. Some people are just not going to care. Because the whole thing is that like, oh yeah, you could, you can't say it on Twitter, but you could say it elsewhere. But now that you could say it on Twitter, then what's the, where, where's the thrill? Yeah. I think it's a part of it too. Um, it like desensitizes things. It's like, you know, are you saying that because you actually believe it or you're saying it just because you wanted to say something sensational to get attention? Right. And then it's, it, it's going to make a lot of things. It's going to make it, it. I feel like things are just going to get messier. They're just going to get messier. Oh man, I have to cough so bad. I, I got to do it. Let, let, let me move my channel real quick. One, two, <laughs> three. Oh man, the echo. Jesus Christ. I hope the gate kicked in there. Uh, probably not, but I had to get that out of my system. Like it was just scratching my throat and I'm like, oh God, can I, I, I drank a little bit of water. I'm like, can I get through it? Can I get through it? No, no, I couldn't get through it. So, you know, I don't know if I mentioned it on the show, but I once did this thing called the Bitcoin lightning market at Bitcoin brunch where we had a bunch of local vendors come and they set up their boots and they were all accepting Bitcoin as, you know, lightning uh, for payments. And it was just like a proof of uh, a proof of work, proof of concept that, you know, that I could do it, that I could successfully pull that off. And I really appreciated all the people who came through. But the reason I bring it up is because I was recently thinking about the idea of Bitcoin circular economies, something that comes up a lot at Bitcoin Brunch, that communities, you know, for Bitcoin to be successful, we need communities or places where someone could go and essentially live on Bitcoin. If you, for some reason, had a bunch of Bitcoin, there should be a way for you to use them for goods and services. Uh, And I think there's a lot of potential for lightning to serve to build those kinds of communities, to build those kinds of circular economies. But it's just important to keep in mind that there are tax implications for doing business in the United States. And so, you know, just be careful. (laughs) So, yeah. So, I mean, I I would see being able to regulate um, things like taxes when it comes to Bitcoin, because, you know, the, um, the transactions are recorded. But what about lightning? Like transactions aren't necessarily recorded. So, how would a government apparatus control that? I feel like it's like tips. Hmm. How does the government control tips? You just support it. Yeah. They, um, you're supposed to claim your tips on your income taxes. Right. But how much of them do they people actually claim? And what's the government ever really going to do about so it? They'll probably just have like a threshold. Okay. So this person's making X amount and, you know, I, I guess it's, it's, it's going to be like, you can only hide so much money. Yeah, I don't think anything really changes from right. today. It's everything's the same. It's like if 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 they see you're spending money and you're not explaining where it's coming from, they might ask questions or they might not. It just depends. <laughs> right. So let's say theoretically I had a bunch of Bitcoin and I I wanted to sell it all now and then buy a house. They'd probably say, "Hey, so where'd you get that money for that house?" <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how that works exactly, but I'm sure the bank has to report. Like, oh, there's going to be people who have to report things like the money moving around. And at some point that might go to the IRS because someone's going to claim that as revenue. I guess the only way would be, you know, just straight cash, uh, cash purchase. Hmm. Yeah. What are you going to do? Always have to have some sort of document involved, some sort of bureaucracy. I do think that there needs, like we need more accounting information and education. I don't think there's enough discussion about that in the Bitcoin community. We don't, 
so there's a lot of discussion about financial literacy and understanding dollars and how the economy works and how money works, but there's not enough emphasis on how this economy works and how our government works. That's really important because I think in the future, many people are going to face the consequences of not having prepared for the way our country works, not, you know, not getting their paperwork in order. Um, I just, I'm surprised, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised, but a, bit, a lot of Bitcoiners spend a lot of money. And if a lot of that money's coming from Bitcoin, I think this is going to bite them in the ass one day if they're not, you know, just doing their due diligence to give Caesar what Caesar claims is his. So we got Halloween coming up um, on Monday, whatever that means to people. And uh, in the spirit, it means I'll be working. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be working too, but in the spirit of the the Halloween-ness, you know, I had gotten this shirt printed up. Uh, The shirt was designed by Columbus Bitcoin out of Columbus, Ohio. Mm. And of course, why don't I have it with me, right? It's in the, it's in my hamper (laughs) because I wore it yesterday. It says night of the living BTC. You saw it already. It's got a hand coming out of a zombie hand coming out of the floor above the hand. You got the moon, except the moon's got the Bitcoin symbol in it. And above it says in big letters, night of the living BTC. I thought it was pretty cool. I got it printed on like this, this nice shirt and uh, you know, Columbus BTC gave me the shirt for free. Uh, I mean, he didn't give me the shirt. He gave me the image. He was just giving it away freely. He's like, here, I, I designed this thing. And so, you know, uh, it was a unique. Does it mean anything to you? Like, is there some symbolism there that Bitcoin is bringing zombies out of the dead? Uh, I mean, no, out of okay. the ground? So it didn't actually mean anything to me until I had to start thinking about it, I suppose. And then what I concluded was that it's it's got to do with all the times people have said Bitcoin is dead. Oh, uh, okay. I like that. <laughs> right? So it's Night of Living BTC because like Bitcoin is back from the dead again. And they got that, they got a few websites that track all of the headline, like news articles that have been printed claiming that Bitcoin's over. Yeah, it's done. It's declining now. Everyone's leaving. All the hype is done and it keeps coming back. So to me, I think that's what it is. It's um, obviously it's, it's in the spirit of Halloween, but if it had to mean something other than just a clever, you know, take on the phrase night of the living dead, it has to do with that. I think. (laughs) I also got another uh, picture printed. I mean, another shirt printed from a picture that I had designed by an artist on Fiverr. And I gave it to my friend for his birthday. I gave him a shirt that I had printed. It was, I told him it was a one of one because he's into crypto. So I'm like, well, let me, let me give an NFT reference. So it's a one of one original. Um, and he could tell immediately that it was based on 2001, a space odyssey. Um, I'll try to include the uh, picture in the chapter art. Um, yeah, that was art that was supposed to be for... For crypto bits. <laughs> crypto bits. <laughs> Which, you know, it's an idea that... It was it was my original idea for a Bitcoin and crypto-related podcast. But then, like, over the last year, I've, like, really come to accept the how horrible crypto is. So I don't really necessarily want to do a podcast about crypto anymore. But I really like the name. I think it's a really good name. I'm surprised still that no one has like really used it for something. Well, you could put the domain up for sale. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, didn't I mention that last week how I almost got rid of the domain, but then I didn't. Yeah. Ugh, I, I, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. 
So we just finished recording. This is our second podcast today, actually, right? Yep, it is. We were just Busy with bunnies. with um, our buddy John and recording another podcast, Smooth Thoughts. If you want to check that out, put a link in the show notes. I think it went very smoothly. It was very, very smooth. <laughs> Apparently a reference to the meme of Smooth Brain. Huh, I yeah, don't know I that name. Didn't know you, that one. Is either. it an image meme? Yeah. You got to put it in the chapter. Because you know how, how how brains have wrinkles, you know, and that's like the, the folds are basically there's more and more neurons packed together. So the idea is someone smarter has a bunch of, you know, wrinkles. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> funny. So I, I, I looked up smooth brain and it like, it looks like a piece of salmon. And it yeah. just says smooth brain because it's all smooth. Yeah, it's like, oh, why think so much? Just live life, you know? <laughs> no, smooth, no wankles, cute. Can't think equals no sad. Think yeah, equals exactly. sad. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's cute. Um, anyway, but I'll definitely put a, a link in the show notes. That's a podcast I, I do with John. It's pretty fun. And we had uh, Prem, uh, we had Captain Brunch on today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. It really doesn't bother me to be called Prem, but I mean, I you know, it is the Captain Brunch is like the character, the the caricature, I suppose, for the the avatar for the show. And John wanted to um, ask many questions of the captain about Bitcoin and how can you take Bitcoin down, the tax, the tax vectors. But you see, I mean, he he did some research beforehand, so he realized there really wasn't much to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> but we still had lots to talk about. I mean, I thought the conversation went really well. It was a good show. We, we, we covered a lot of different things. And, I, you know, I enjoy that. I do like talking kind of generally and theoretically about Bitcoin and John is a, you know, he's into altcoins and that's cool. Like I don't discriminate against people, but I'm always very upfront about my own biases. He keeps saying he's into altcoins, but he doesn't really talk about them much. Well, he was into so. the metaverse and then usually these metaverses are attached to, to blockchain. Yeah, so that's why he kept talking stuff. about blockchain, you know, cause it's like, that's, that's what it is, is that you're into some project that's stuck to a blockchain. And that's always the downfall is that like, if the project's good, why did it have to be on a blockchain? Eh, you know, whatever <laughs> those, you know, you can uh, read about those kinds of conversations and more in an upcoming book that I will be publishing uh-huh. on an unknown date. It will be the Bitcoin brunch book, a collection of the essays and columns that I have recited at Bitcoin brunch over the last 70 plus. No, well, I've only recited 40 something essay. So the idea is that once I get around like 52, it's like almost like a year, you know, like a year of essays turn it into like a little, you know, a little, uh, the first season. Yeah. A limited edition print or something, you know, one of one. No, it wouldn't be one of one. It would, I would, I would try to like do a little fundraising, you know, try to get some money from people who I think like want to be supportive of Bitcoin brunch and what I'm trying to do. And then see how many I can get printed and then... Oh, so you would want to go for a physical release. Oh, yeah. And I can do like a, um, a digital release and, and ask for lightning. Um, I could do both. Like could, there could be a digital version, but I want there to be like a physical version that for historical purposes, you know, for, for people to uh, be able to show their their support through like a trophy, 
right? Like it's a trophy that will have my essays in it. <laughs> Breaking news. At least 149 killed in Seoul Halloween crowd surge. Oh gosh. These stampedes, man. Yeah. Panda just posted to the chat. People are, people are so Jeez. anxious to get out of the house after the pandemic that they're like trampling people. But you know, that's, uh, that of course reminds me of a topic that you, that you brought up several weeks ago. One day, maybe you'll address it. So uh, what? The crowd dynamics. I mean, well, okay, right, right away, it's, uh, they mentioned it was an, a narrow passage and that's one of the, um, it was a narrow street where 149 people seemed to be killed. I mean, that's, that's one of the things it's, it's obviously a lot of people, but also being squeezed into a certain space and then either they're trying to get away from something or they're going towards something of value. Yeah. I'm not mentally prepared for that right now, so I'm not going to get into it, but yeah. This is interesting though. So we can talk about this next week. For sure. I hope so. Uh, something that came up on my Twitter feed that I thought was interesting. Um, a guy named Saifula Paracha, a Pakistani citizen. Or oh. I'm not sure. He was kidnapped 20 years ago by the United States federal government and held in Guantanamo Bay. He was released. And when he was kidnapped, he was eight, well, if he, he was there for 20 years He's 75 now. So if he was there for 20 years, he must have been 55 when he got out. And I don't remember why I had this weird feeling when I read the headline. I'm going to include the picture in the show notes. I mean, and in the in the chapter art. So it, it was some Twitter account called Reprieve. And it says, breaking, oldest Guantanamo detainee released after almost 20 years detained without trial. This is a huge win for Saifala Paracha, 75, returns to his family, a frail old man, after being taken in the prime of his life. That injustice can never be rectified. Now, I agree. I mean, kidnapping someone for 20 years can never be forgiven. But I just found it so strange that they said in the prime of his life. So I, I looked up the life expectancy in Pakistan. Are you being ageist? I'm being, no, I'm not being ageist. I'm being something else. So I looked at the the life expectancy in Pakistan. It's 67.6. So it's like 68 years old. The guy has been in prison for 20 years without charges. He's 75 now. So the question I raise, and it's kind of an insensitive question, but the question I raised because of what was said in that Twitter tweet, if he wasn't kidnapped by the United States and he had continued living in the prime of his life in Pakistan, he would have been dead 12 years later instead of, uh, instead of alive now at 75, most so you're likely. suggesting that the United States government <laughs> help extended this man's life. Yeah, by, by basically imprisoning him for 20 years, they kept him alive longer than he would have been if he would have been free. it's uh i'm not i'm not saying it excuses it it's like carl drogo like what is life if you're just a zombie there you go um is he yeah i mean i don't know about the quality of his life I, i i don't know i don't know how horrible things were in guantanamo for 20 years like maybe did they keep him in solitary for 20 years that seems horrible i mean the whole thing seems horrible i mean i don't think it's okay i just i just wonder that's all that's all. You should be happy you're alive, even though you're a slave. You should be happy you're alive. We're <laughs> letting you live. We're giving you food. I didn't say any of that. <laughs> that's what you're implying. Uh, and maybe I'm, I'm asking if that's what I'm implying. That's that's the question yes. for the people who listen to this podcast. So you're looking at only the fact that he's alive. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm um, I'm about to, to go into a special feature. It's um, it's for the Brazilian election, which is happening tomorrow. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro is going head to head against um, I can't even remember the guy's name. Lula, Lula da Silva. Anyway, so Lula was a president for a while in Brazil in the uh, early 2000s. <clears throat> He served two terms and then he left office because that's the, the max you can serve. But I guess if you've taken one term off, you're allowed to run again. Well, what ha- I don't know what Lula went to prison. He was like convicted of all kinds of char. What, what's going on? Well, well just because you said they're going head to head. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Like, Brazil is extremely divided on this point and Brazil is one of the largest countries in the planet. It's one of the most populated countries on the planet. Over 200 million people live there. They have tons of natural resources and I'm half Brazilian. So it's kind of important to me. So I wanted to go over a little bit of like what's going on over there. And I wanted to start off by trying to give some context. Night of the living Lula. He came back from the dead. He (laughs) He came back from jail. He came back from prison (laughs) and he's running for president. And the funny thing is that if he wins as president, like the president is immune to prosecution in Brazil. So even if he did anything illegal, as long as he's president, he can't be prosecuted for it. Um, So I listened to one podcast called Explaining Brazil. And the issues that a lot of these podcasts are extremely Western centric, they look at the world from a, <clears throat> you know, from, from like a neoliberal mainstream globalist point of view. And it really bothers me because it removes the context of what it's like to actually be Brazilian, of what the actual experiences of Brazilians are. It's like an extremely elitist and might, and it applies to such few people. So I'm going to start off with a quick little, uh, and I don't hear it. Oh, okay. Cause you gotta, you gotta turn my audio back on. So, um, explaining Brazil, it's a podcast, um, that explains Brazil and they had, um, this was an episode that had nothing to do with the elections, but it was explaining how they started the podcast itself, like where the idea for the podcast came from. And I wanted to give this as a context for some of the, the clips that I'm going to be playing in the future. Chimp, you're going to maybe understand what I'm trying to say with this clip. Maybe other people won't. I'm not going to say too much about it, but I'm going to say a little bit. Just to uh, add a little bit about how we did the transition, because Laura and I, we had this vision that we should, because we are small and I mean, there's just so much you can do. We had to not try to do everything and focus on um, politics and economics and also not try to do a free website to try maybe with Google ads, uh, get our revenue, because then you have to be massive for it to be consequential. So we knew we wanted a paid product and a very niche product. And also that idea, and this is quite interesting because a, a lot of the Brazilian report came by accident. That friend- Okay, so before I let him get too deep into this story. <laughs> um, so again, so he's saying... He- they made it. They made a specific decision. We're not going to be a big general company. We're going to have a niche product. Okay, that's an interesting route to go about that. I wonder what, what influenced that decision. Let's. Let's. Editor who made a comment, and then I remember I was visiting an embassy in Brasilia, and the political attaché said to me, "Like, okay, I have this daily newsletter that I get about Brazilian news." 
I don't like it doesn't suit all my needs. If you do a better product, uh, then I'll buy it. And I remember. Okay, so he was at an embassy in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, and an an attaché. So someone who was working in an embassy just tells him, "Oh, I got this shitty." report on brazil if you had a better one i would buy it from you and then that's the story of how this this company gets started that seems so fishy to me especially given that we know after the um the chelsea manning leaks that most of these embassies are just like spy mills and intelligence uh, fronts so i really have to wonder if that was really how the conversation went or if it wasn't like, hey, I'll funnel you my government's money if, you know, you create this thing anyway. So so I already think that these people are, you know, working for the wrong forces. So now I'm going to move on to a different podcast called Brazil Unfiltered. This is put on by the uh, by the Brazil Institute at a Brown University. And again, it's just like all these crazy neoliberal Western points of view. This guy's interviewing two Brazilian activists about the election. Is it two or Brazilian? Or so he's, he's interviewing one guy. And I want to give you a sense of how people are talking about this election, how similar it is to the way the, the mainstream media talked about the Trump election. So just let's get a, get a load of this. Well, I think uh, what, became very clear is that uh, the right wing is still uh, the dominant force in Brazilian politics. Uh, some of us expected to be an ideological shift accompanying uh, Bolsonaro's uh, growing in popularity, but that didn't happen. He's uh, not a popular president, uh, but the right wing is still much, much stronger than the left. Okay, so... There's a little more to this clip. He's saying they expected, it seems reasonable, right? Okay, this guy wins for president. He's a part of a minority party, but they expect there to be more stuff to go with that, right? So for some reason, then they're surprised by the fact that so many Bolsonaro politicians actually won in the recent election before, you know, before the runoff. So let's get a little deeper into this. We expected uh, more senates uh, from the left, uh, more senators, uh, um, from the left to be elected. Uh, we expected some very, very radical right-wing fascist candidates to be uh, defeated in the actually one, uh, especially for the Senate. Okay, so extremist, radical, right-wing, fascist. fascist candidates. And they expected them to lose, but they won. And and, and what I, the kind of thing that I'm trying to like display or to, to give in the minds of the people who are listening to us is that these people are living in a, some sort of strange bubble where the world as they expect it or want it to be is the only legitimate way it can be. And then nothing else makes sense. So they expected these right wing fascist, insane people to lose, but like for some reason, they won. <laughs> so let's try to, this is about like 30 more seconds in this particular clip. Uh, Bolsonaro managed to uh, beat to a pulp uh, the center right. Pulp. Uh, you know, he basically occupied the, the, the space in parliament that was traditionally occupied by, by the center right. 
uh, now he has filled those seats with. So it's like to a pope. It's like it's <laughs> it's making it violence. These violent extremists. Oh, yes. <laughs> Everything, even though it's it's an election, right? So the the polls expected Bolsonaro to come in around thirty three to thirty five percent, something like that. He actually got forty three percent of the vote, and this all the liberals are like, what? I don't get it. I don't get it. All the polls said, all the polls said, and that's because that they've been trained and brainwashed to think that these institutions and these, these, um, polls that simply reinforce the institutions were ever real, were ever honest, were ever accurate representations of reality. And they're not. And so the election is happening tomorrow. And and what I'm trying to create here is a sense for, you know, this is something that they talked about a lot on the no agenda show, like the, um, universe A and universe B or reality A, reality B. The fact that people are so attached to their biases that they're literally creating these like bubble realities that, 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 that don't even see what the other person's doing. It's a model. Like, Oh, that's for often, sure. Often science models are wrong. <laughs> so, so this next clip is going to further reinforce this like parallel between the Trump and Bolsonaro campaigns and the way that they're talked about. Again, a la Trump, I, more and more, I feel that one can make lots of comparisons between Brazil and the United States. I've always distanced myself from that as an historian. There are many things that are common, continental-sized countries, diverse racial differences, a melting pot in many ways, many immigrants, the legacies of slavery. Many, many things are similar, similar but many things are different. Yes. But in this political climate, there's more and more similarities between Brazil and the United States. Before we get on to what we might think. Yeah. So again, I mean, it wasn't too much in that clip, but it's, it's just this idea that not only are there all these natural parallels between the United States and Brazil, and he, he, he listed them all, but he's saying that specifically politically it's the same and whether it's true or not, right? Like whether Bolsonaro and Trump are actually similar or not, that doesn't matter. What's the truth is that, I mean, what matters is that that's the narrative that they're going to push that Bolsonaro is as bad as Trump. Right. Because right. He's, he's pushing the, the, uh, the comparison. Yeah. Because they're talking to an audience that they expect to be very receptive to their worldview. So to kind of talk about the contempt that these liberals actually have for democracy though. Right. So, so they're calling Bolsonaro and his supporters fascist and anti-democratic and they're worried about a coup when they're really the ones who have a great contempt for democracy. They don't, they don't actually want anyone to vote their conscience. They want them to vote the way they want them to vote. So this is a a clip about Ciro Gomez, who was one of the third party candidates who ran um, in the presidential election. He, he obviously lost, but they're, they're going to talk about his campaign, how, what his strategy was, and then what they expect him to do now that he lost. He expected Lula to do very well. And he expected Bolsonaro to do very badly. And he knew that he, he couldn't beat Lula, he, he, at least in the first round. He couldn't take Lula's place in the second round. So what he tried to do was to, uh, you know, pose as an anti-Lula who could actually uh, beat Lula in the second round. He was hoping that Bolsonaro would do it so badly that, the, uh, you know, the Bolsonaristas will actually... Uh, it, it, it does seem strange, but, you know, he, he expected them to, to, to vote for him. 
uh, instead of Bolsonaro, because uh, at a certain point he expected Bolsonaro to be polling much worse, and then uh, this, uh, this share of the electorate, uh, who is very, very anti-Lula, uh, would have to find another candidate, and he, he would be there for them. It was a very bold strategy, right. but it became... Very soon, it became clear that that, that it didn't, it, it had not worked, you know, uh, and that's a, a very, very big uh, understatement because uh, it, it worked it, it, in this election. As you said, he is this his fifth time running for president, and by far this is his worst result. I think it's his fourth time for president. Fourth time, it's, 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 and it's fifth, yeah, 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 it's, fourth time, yes. But it's the fifth party that he's belonged to. Yes, yes, he's, he's, he's a, He loves to And he never had such hopping. a bad result, you know? And, and I think it's a little funny that they're kind of making fun of him a little bit, and they're going to do it again a little further in the clip about this guy having run for office so many times. So many times, yeah. I want to... but. People might not know that Lula ran for office four times. He ran for president four times before he won Lula in his uh, people like the workers party in his prime. Yeah, right. In his prime because Lula's pretty friggin' old. So let's, let's keep on going because they're going to get to what, what they expect Ciro Gomez to do now that he lost. The strategy backfired very badly. Yeah, he, uh, went, he went from nine points to uh, to three points yeah. and, and is kind yes. of out of the running. He's announced that he's not planning to run for president again, although see how long that lasts. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he had to think about what he's going to do next. So what do you expect to happen? Do you expect he's going to say, what do you expect? I think he might. Uh, he said he wouldn't because, he, as I said, he was trying to get the, the Bolsonaro vote for him. Um, once again, a very bold or a very insane strategy <laughs> okay so again so they're calling the guy insane they they said that he said he would not you know spot he wouldn't support lula or bolsonaro right so this is the context the guy's crazy he's run for president a bunch of times he hasn't okay both yes of course um but you know since the election was closer uh than we thought it would be uh, I think there's a chance that he might, you know, if Lula now had a 20% lead going to the second round, you know, it might be good for him to, uh, to position himself as uh, to the left of Lula so that in the Lula government, he might lead the leftist opposition, you know, and maybe Lula would lose some votes, but then he would just, you know, move from 20 to 15, which is also good. And Bolsonaro would still be beaten, and he would, you know, emerge as uh, as the leftist um, uh, leader, the leader of the leftist opposition to Lula. But you know, but right now the election is much closer. So if Lula loses three points, you know, he might lose. And I don't think Ciro is going to be as as irresponsible, you know, uh, enough to 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 avoid uh, supporting Lula, even if it, it will look very bad for him. Even if it will look very bad. Well, you know, that's what you have to <laughs> you do. You have to do. <laughs> right now, I, I think we're probably going to talk about this. Uh, Bolsonaro had such a good uh, election uh, for the Senate. He has managed uh, to elect so many fascists to the Senate <laughs> that if he, win if he wins the second, uh, second term, he will have the votes uh, to impeach uh, Supreme Court judges. So, I mean, that's the real fear right there, what he said at the end. I mean, because now that Bolsonaro has all this support in the Senate, which he didn't have for the first four years of his, you know, for his first term, 
Now he can do a lot more. If he wins again, now he can actually govern the way he wants to govern. Not with the whole Congress fighting against him and working against him, but like actually the way he wants to govern. And so, you know, again, this contempt for democracy saying Ciro Gomez, no, no, it would be irresponsible. He would not be so irresponsible as to, you know, to refuse to support Lula, you know, so that you can kind of see where this is going. Um, Let's get a little more of this fascism. I was going to talk about Simone, but I actually want to go on and ask you a question. You're a political scientist, sociologist, very smart guy. Um, <laughs> very smart I, guy. I've always been hesitant. And always hesitant. Because of the very specific context of what fascism was in Italy and then in Germany and um, and other places in Europe. And yet there's a consolidation of a far right, which is proto-fascist, neo-fascist, almost... <laughs> Why do you use the term fascist? Well, uh, do you know Jason Stanley, the guy who wrote... Uh, what, what's the name of the book? Uh, I, I don't know the English name. Tell of us. It. Tell us the Brazilian name then. Come on. It's a, it's a book about fascism. And uh, he was in Brazil in 2019, and uh, he told me that he, he, he always calls this, this new uh, far-right uh, authoritarian populists uh, fascists. And some people say, no, 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 they're not fascists. They're the alt-right. And he said, that's a, such a clever marketing initiative, you know, to call yourself an alt-right. It sounds like you're a Seattle band. <laughs> I thought that was such was a great talk. line. Like, it's like you're a Seattle grunge band. Um, I don't know. Do you think it's do you think it's an unreasonable term, alt-right? I don't feel like that was really like an empowering term to begin with anyways. I feel like it was always a... Like, oh, those are the alternative right. Those is. I guess it depends on how you use it. Like, like, like how 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 the word woke has gone from you know one end end of the spectrum to the other. <laughs> oh it's yeah, it's being used <laughs> ultra maga, you know. Yeah, I definitely thought in that clip though it was funny that he's like I, I'm hesitant to 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 use the word fascist, and then he goes and says like neo fascist, this fascist, that. I'm like, what you bastard? Yeah, he was priming it first. He's like, oh well, you know, <laughs> this is a bad word. We shouldn't really use it, but in this case, it's necessary. <laughs> All right, so um, I got one more clip from that podcast, and this one kind of is a little bit. It's, it's, it's a slightly different direction. They're talking about um, a, a, a gubernatorial race that's related, obviously, to the national politics. I just thought it was funny. Let's just listen to this and then I'll make a couple comments. And for some of our listeners, the moderate FPS debate candidate is Eduardo yeah. Lecce, who declared his homosexuality as an openly gay man. He has a partner. Um, and um, Okay, so Eduardo Lecce. Milk? Milk. And I don't know, for some reason, every time I hear this guy's name, I think of Harvey Milk. I'm like, uh, so Harvey Milk was a gay politician from San Francisco. And, you know, and they made a movie that was starring Sean Penn. <laughs> and so for some reason, I'm like, huh, that's so funny that there's this, this you know, Lechi, <laughs> and he's a politician and he came out of the closet. And anyways, he was the former the simulation. Yeah. <laughs> in order to run for office. Um, he did support Bolsonaro in 18 in the elections, but he's now distanced himself, I think not for any ideological reasons, but just because I think, I'm not sure why he distanced himself. He never made it really clear. And he's running against, and why don't you explain his opponent? So what, what kind of opponent you think this guy's going to have? So, so Lechi doesn't support Bolsonaro anymore, even though he did. So, you know, what do you think this other guy's going to be like? <laughs> going to be a black coffee kind of guy. 
maybe a fascist. Let's see. <laughs> uh, right now, uh, he's running against um, uh, Onyx Lorenzoni, uh, who is a, a, a really terrible guy. Uh, he's one of the most outspoken Bolsonaro supporters in the, you know, terrible uh, strategy of fighting COVID. You know, he's a very low quality, you know, really terrible candidate. <laughs> he would never have a, a shot at aiming uh, for being governor uh, in any other time in Brazilian democracy. <laughs> so his main descriptors were he's a supporter of, of Bolsonaro and he has no chance. He said terrible twice. Oh, terrible. He did say terrible. <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> so it's like, it's so weird how condescending and otherizing and prejudiced these people are. They, they're, they, they look at the Bolsonaro supporters like those basket of deplorables that Hillary Clinton had talked about. And this is, this is really bad because you're talking about millions and millions of people in that country that you're completely ignoring their worldview. You're ignoring what they want or what they hope for in the world. And the problem is it, it wouldn't matter if they weren't winning elections, but they're winning elections and one that they might win is the one that's happening tomorrow for president of the country. I think it's just a, fo a function of culture. You know, it's just like, you kind of have to um, to spread information. You ha um, you, you kind of have to simplify it, and and by having a, a, a boogeyman, it's 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 really easy to um, to spread those values. Um, in this case, I guess liberalism, neo neoliberalism, and just focus on on a boogeyman. In this case, it's fascism. It's um, it's anti-immigration um, for the family. Like I don't even know what Bolsonaro stands for, but I'm, I'm going to guess that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of I mean, you know he's a politician, so right. he's he's mostly a hypocrite. But you know he, he I don't know. I, I I have no bone in this game, so to speak. I don't care which one of them wins. It's going to be a shit show for the country, no matter what. They're all hypocrites, but more people seem to like that hypocrite over that hypocrite. So I, who even knows, right? Because. It's, do we trust these elections? Brazil has an all electronic election system. Who knows? Um, <laughs> Wait, is, is it a smart contract? Is there a blockchain? <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing like that. So again, I want to just be very clear to me. It makes no difference. Well, okay. It makes a material difference, which one wins, but I don't care which one wins. There's definitely going to be a difference, especially like in, in the context that they've given already about how, Bolsonaro has so much support in the Senate now. So I got another set of clips. Um, do you have any music, uh, like any inter intermezzos that we could do? Because uh, we could take a little, but I can go into this one. You do? Oh, great. So we'll be right back.
I bring this up so much because, and, and the reason why I'm dedicating so much time to it is because I think this is really important. This is going to really determine the future of Brazil. Brazil has been in chaos, not, you know, it hasn't been anarchy and, and total, you know, barbarity, but it's, it's been in chaos, economic and social chaos for several years now. And I think no matter what, no matter who wins, I think they're going to start getting cohesion again. It's just the question becomes, what does that look like for Brazil? Are they going to look like a more kind of conservative right wing country or are they going to look more like a, a more liberal country? Whatever, you know, I'm, I'm going to love my cousins and I'm going to go visit just the same. I guess the main fear is that... Um whatever the ideal is by seeing a such a large country, such a large population with so many um, different kinds of people, if it does function, I mean, it is going to function to some extent, but um, by having that example in the world, in this case, it will, it will scale, scare the neoliberals. Oh shit. You know, um, <laughs> it's not as bad as we've been saying, you know? Yeah. So now I'm, I'm pulling from uh, the red nation podcast. And this is kind of funny because red nation is um, an indigenous, like it's a podcast done by indigenous people. Um, but they're also pretty much communist. So it's the, the, the name is a double entendre and um, they Not pretty much are yeah. very much. communist. <laughs> yeah. And they, um, they interviewed two activists in Brazil and, and so again, so what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to give Americans and other people context as to the worldview and the way that these certain liberals are looking at the situation. This is obviously a much more radical point of view than what we were just getting before. Sure. Well, so first of all, like nobody expected this would be an easy election to win. We were all very confident. We believe we're going to win. Statistics are on our side and the campaign as well. And of course, the general feeling of the Brazilian people that this has to be done. People are, they really want to get over Bolsonaro. Um, so when we see the results, of course, there's a shock. People were waiting to win on first turn. There was these high expectations, militants, people on the streets. They believed that could happen and polls were pointing into that direction. However, there is something those polls did not catch, which is the silent vote to Bolsonaro. And those okay, so what he's talking anti-what? Anti-PT. So PT oh. is the, the Workers' Party, Partido dos Trabalhadores. So that's the party that, that Lula's from. And I think what's, what's kind of interesting here is one thing, you know, he's talking about how they expected Lula to win the first round. They didn't want, they didn't hope or expect it to go to a runoff. And what I find really interesting here is that, so these are like radical communists, but they are representing like what seems like a very mainstream defense of Lula, like a neoliberal globalist kind of candidate. So it's just, it's, it's kind of bizarre to me. Like the fact that these guys are sitting here push, you know, towing the line for a mainstream typical candidate. Right. But I guess it's a lesser of two evils for what they're trying to achieve. But is it, but like, that just seems like what communists don't, communists aren't supposed to give a shit about that. I feel like, like, aren't you supposed to start a revolution or something? You're not supposed to be voting for the lesser of two evils. So anyways, let's, uh, let me try to get rid of this quote. I mean, this, uh, this clip over here. <laughs> 
and they were showing up on polls supporting Ciro Gomez and Simone Tebet, the other candidates uh, on the fourth and third position, respectively. Uh, and in the end, we believe some of those votes migrated directly to Bolsonaro. They knew the third way was not possible. It wouldn't go to the second turn. So they decided to make their votes more useful, voting directly to Bolsonaro already. So expectations are that those who voted for Simone Tebet and Ciro Gomez in the end will now migrate to Lula and we can win some other indecisive votes and uh, win over This is the other activist. Yeah, I think that there was a rather quixotic hope and expectation, not just in Brazil among the militants working on this campaign, but perhaps even more strongly and even more delusionally at the international level, that Brazil was going to buck the trend that we see across Latin America and around the world and go for this full-scale expulsion or eviction of not just the figure of Bolsonaro, so, but Bolsonaro, you know, and the extreme. Again, what what kind of delusional world did these guys live in that they thought that the election was going to be this huge repudiation of Bolsonarismo? You know, how how could it be such a shock to them that people were actually willing to support this guy? Well, I mean, they've been listening to their own bubble for the last... (laughs) They've been drinking their Kool-Aid too much, you know, sucking their own teats. Because they saw Trump lost, like, okay, it's going to happen in Brazil too. Well, we're going to find out tomorrow. But anyway, so if, you know, this is, um, if Lula wins, this is, again, this is how strange with the strange world these guys live in. Let's let's hear what what these guys think that's going to happen. It's not just a question about, you know, humiliating them in public and dunking on their tweets, nor is it about calling in, in the gringos to say we're scared about the fate of democracy. It's going to have to be handled uh, by, whatever, by the Lula government that we are confident will come to power in January with a program that begins to really take care of people uh, and build back their confidence uh, in a social and democratic state. We are confident. Uh, that, that really right. Like we're confident that this mainstream candidate is going to actually like respond to the needs of the people. I don't know where the hell these guys are coming from. I don't know where they're coming from. So this next clip, it's this again, this goes to the, their contempt of democracy. And it's true that no matter how much they try to feel into the anti sentiment, those people made more money in the Lula government than they're making with Bolsonaro. Economy was going better. People uh, had money to circulate the economy. Internationally, Brazil was better placed. We had reserve, dollar reserves. We paid our debts. We were the at some point between the biggest economies in the world. So even the economic class is now realizing that Bolsonaro is not a good path. And there's a second argument and I'll finish with that, is that they are realizing that even if they want to get away from PT, Bolsonaro is a threat to democracy. So some of these people are understanding that if they want to present a third way, if they want to replace PT and Bolsonaro, it might be the case to win with Lula now to preserve Okay, so, I mean, isn't that like this is the typical crap party. that they say to either third party candidates or to like radical um, segments of a, of a party. Like, so you think of like the Ron Paul uh, wing of the Republicans or um, like the Dennis Kucinich back in the day with the Democrats, 
you know, that it's no, no, you know what, you know, like we just got to focus on winning this election and, and when, then, and then we'll address <laughs> it. You know what they say to the black community, what they say to yeah. all the minorities, like, listen, 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 I know you got issues, but we just got to get our guy in office and then we'll take care of you. Yeah. That's the same comparison <laughs> I was going to make, but we're also assuming that these activists are communists. Yeah, they are they are so yeah. <laughs> listen to this, this mean, next clip this next clip is just a wild rant i don't know what the hell he's saying you know i don't know if you've seen this as well circulating pedro you know the trump's endorsement actually had a significant shift uh in in the in the vote here in in, in, in brazil towards towards bolsonaro that that you know obviously trump took credit for it later on i don't even know what social media channels he's using these days they somehow somehow screenshots always appear on my feed but um he was like yeah you're welcome for basically helping you get through to the second round and prevent a first round victory for lula but i do think his job you know his project so far as my job and my life's project is try to build these uh left international infrastructure to combat so that new he's a part of the left it's really important international infrastructure <laughs> and he's against the reactionary international I'm like what the fuck is he talking about it's counterfactual where trump is president and bolsonaro is contesting the election i think it it, it looks completely different and that's not to give Joe Biden lots of credit or try to bolster the credentials of the United States as some great defender of democracy but, and the Democratic Party as the principal promoters of you know, the democratic ideal. It's to say that uh, there is a kind of mimetic or isomorphism. You know, there is a way in which like mimesis does play a critical role in the advance of these right wing groups as well as okay, I, I, <laughs> that's a creative way of bringing it back to Trump. I got to say, huh? I, 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 like what, what, what did he say right here? Voters of, you know, the democratic ideal It's to say that, uh, there is a, a mimetic, mimetic isomorphism. isomorphism. This is, I guess what they're teaching in communist school. All right. Uh, and I also agree with your earlier analysis, Nick, that in the absence of a pandemic, we get a second Trump presidency. You know, I just think that there is this tendency to think that this is all just too crazy to be real, that our countries are veering into madness, that there isn't a, a clear project at work from the far right and a clear failure of vision from, you know, other parts. Yeah, it really is a dimension, a dimension. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend and... And it, it got to the point where it's like, he was like, you know, like, no, democracy doesn't work. It's all bullshit. You know, um, um, he said it as a joke, I should just be in power. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, he was basically saying like, you know, if, if, if these ideas don't work out, then it's all bullshit and we should just do something else. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, then you're missing out the point of, <laughs> of democracy. Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's get a little more of that. Um, I tend to disagree a little bit about how the pandemic is such a good contrafact for the Brazilian context. Um, it's absurd, but Bolsonaro's health minister... Oh, I remember. <laughs> so, he's... Because he I mean, obviously, like, this has to do with the worldviews about the pandemic. He's holding this guy responsible for all the people who died of COVID in, this, in, in Brazil... did not buy vaccines and he was openly <laughs> promoting chloroquine as if everybody knew 
when totally proved. knew and it was totally proved that it wouldn't be effective. This guy, as minister, was and talking he, to people. And he was elected. And he was elected. With a very Again, so so if this guy was such a horrible health minister, and if he's responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths, then I don't know, like it, the people must be insane if they vote overwhelmingly voted to make him like a senator or something. But these these people, and then I just want to repeat this one part of the of the clip is for hundreds of thousands of Did you hear what that, that guy's saying like what this vaccine. like i want to snap and just like go on a, a rant you know like how dare you say that if he would have bought vaccines that that would have saved anybody's fucking life like how dare you 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 anyways let's let's oh man i got way too many clips let me just try to play a few more yeah you're starting to understand what i'm what i'm getting at with this stuff And then there's a second parallel that we can make uh, with Trump. What is it? Uh, besides these connections that I mentioned, uh, is uh oh, January six, multiple uh -oh. capital events such as the one you had in the U.S. Brazil's uh, weak. The difference is our institutions are not as strong as the U.S. institutions to deal with <laughs> this uh, um, lunatic coup attempt or defying the results of the election attempt, and uh, in Brazil, the military polices are not under federal control. They are under the provinces' control. And some of these polices are already known to be very bolsonaristic and with no control under their government. Uh, there are, as David said, a absurd numbers of weapons circulating among civilians now. We have more weapons on the hands of civilians uh, than I, we have. I kind of extended that a little bit longer than I originally wanted to, but I really wanted to get that clip in at the end about there now being more guns in the hands of civilians than there is in the state. I don't know if I believe that, but even if it's true, I don't know if it's a bad thing. Right, exactly. It's uh, now, You know, like if it's militias and gangs and stuff, okay, I don't want them to have weapons, but Obviously, the Brazilian government hasn't been protecting the Brazilian people from the gangs and the militias for decades now. So, I don't know. Maybe the 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 people of Brazil need to friggin', you know, protect themselves. Um, so uh, let me close this off. Uh, let me pick which of these are the most important. Uh, I want to do a click. Do believe. We I know. I do believe that <laughs> if you look into the math and you no look historically chance. in elections in Brazil, there is no chance that a second candidate can win over in a second turn like this. Unless we, of course, so have there's some no chance that Bolsonaro so can win unless. So unless something unpredicted happens. Well, I haven't heard any crazy news out of Brazil. So, so, so again, these people. Like they're the ones who keep saying that the Bolsonaro supporters are going to reject the results of the election. They keep saying that the Bolsonaro supporters are fascists. So are they going to be able to support the results of the election if Lula loses and Bolsonaro right. wins? This is what I really want to know. Projection. This is what I want to know. So, um, it just seems like the same conversation, the same themes everywhere from Europe to South America to the States. And so as, as I'm talking about, it's like, it's like a, fu a function of culture. It's like, 
it, they're just kind of using these same themes to like, I don't want to say push an agenda, but it's, I don't know. It's Yeah. So let me play one more clip. I call it more communism. So this has got to be something that revealed how communist they are. They don't want us to talk about what the program of the Sula government is going to be. They don't want to talk about what it's going to require, what kind of concessions from the international financial system, from transnational corporations, and of course from domestic capital are going to have to make in order to ensure the survival of the Brazilian working class. Oh yeah, like those, you know, the survival of the Brazilian working class. Like that, that's pretty, okay. And I think it's critical that we begin to turn for the procedural concerns around, you know, is this an election that has integrity and transparency towards what are people asking for on the streets and how can this legislature begin to deliver it? Because so, you know, as you saw for yourself, Nick, when we were here in Brazil, so much the Brazilian political class, the so-called Centrão, they, they live off of dodging these programmatic questions, right? They, they love to just Keep that stuff on the sidelines. The horse trade, you know, Pedro walked us through, I think, very elegantly through the crazy horse trading that's happening now, right? Trading favors, trading celebrity, you know, personalities trying to ensure political party support up here, whatever. Can we get these votes? Can we move the block of the Pesa de Debet, et cetera, right? And that is all a game to distract the political class and especially the media from speaking about the very basic issues of political economy in this country. And so what we can hope from, from Lula is enough of these distractions, enough of these stories about, you know, basic procedure, Bolsonaro bad stuff, and start talking about how are we delivering on a program uh, in this country and then, you know, through this Lula government at the level of Latin America and the world that is providing for people uh, over and above the interests of, of, of capital that are that are so well served by the media here in Brazil and certainly uh, international. I think that's our challenge on this podcast uh, in, in the political struggles that Pedro leads between the MTST and the, and the PSOL and, and then far beyond. Yeah. So, you know, um, I mean, I guess it's got to be a function of of like different multinational companies trying to keep um, large governments in their favor, you know, like. There's just got to be some sort of connection here because I don't know. I just. Well, so a part of it to me is it's like this pattern of powerful people using ideological communists to propagate certain arguments that promote their goals, right? Like the goals of the powerful, but not like the narrative of the powerful. So, you know, like Lula as I keep saying, he was a, like a completely mainstream sellout internationalist, like kind of guy. That's why Brazil was so successful under his years, because he was able to cut all these sleazy deals that at least got things done because the alternative for Brazil was to cut no deals. Right. So we, I think we tend to work under the assumption that like the, that they should have cut good deals. That was never going to happen. There's never been like a good free trade deal in the history of free trade deals. So if you are a country that's in a position of weakness, well, if you can get a free trade deal, well, that's probably going to be better in some ways for your middle class and for your upper class, maybe not for the poor and working class. Right. Um, and, and so that's what happened to Brazil is that their, their middle class and their upper class benefited greatly from like trade with the rest of the world. And then through, I guess, through taxation, he was given lots of, um, 
like lots of school. There's a lot of money being pumped to schools and stuff during his, his, his administration. But when he left office, you know, his replacement and the people who took power, they weren't as good at that. And so things started to fall apart. You know, they weren't greasing the right palms, you know? So, but what I find strange about these clips then, because it's coming from the red, the, um, the red nation podcast is just, it's just these people are talking about Lula like he's some sort of communist savior, you know, like he's some sort like, yes, he started off as a union leader, but he turned out, you know, just to be a, a big corrupt politician. And, uh, you know, whatever happens tomorrow, I, I do hope the best for Brazil. I want them to be a peaceful and prosperous nation. I think they have a lot of potential. And uh, yeah, um. I got my fingers crossed. You know, I'm not, I'm not living in a bubble. I'm going to accept whatever the results are and I'm going to deal with it the same, I think, as most people will. And Does it's, everyone it's, vote in Brazil? It's mandatory. It's mandatory. It's mandatory. Oh, yeah, you wow. have to vote in Brazil. That's, that's why they have it on a Sunday, right? So that everyone can do it. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, imagine, like not everyone votes. Like you pay like a fee or something. It's like 15 bucks if you don't vote or something. But for some people, it's, they would rather vote then than pay 15 bucks. And it's quick. I went with my cousin, like when I was in Brazil a few years ago, they were having, um, you know, elections for like local, local representatives. And it was quick. It, you know, I walk, I was able to walk all the way up to the room that she voted in and then she just went in. It, I think it took her like two minutes and then she came out and then we left. It was super, super quick and easy. It's all digital. Like you said, yeah, it's all digital. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad. I, I don't assume it's bad. Um, I mean, I assume if anything's bad, it's the elections themselves and it's not like just this one aspect of it, which is what we tend to focus on when we talk about like elections and they're corrupt or they were stolen. I'm like, how are you going to steal an election? Like it's like they were, the thieves were putting on the election. (laughs) You know, who's, who's stealing what exactly? (laughs) So, um, that's all I'm going to say about Brazil for today. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I absolutely will mention the results of the election next week. (laughs) Thanks for being with us. It's Saturday Night Lit. negotiations means because there are two wars going on. There's an, uh, a war where the U.S., where the Russia is the aggressor going into a civil war inside Ukraine, and there's a geopolitical war in which the U.S. is the aggressor. And so when you talk about peace talks, there have to be talks between Ukraine and Russia, but there also have to be talks between the United States and Russia. Ukraine is not able to negotiate the U.S. lifting sanctions on Russia. That has to be done by the U.S. Ukraine cannot negotiate uh, arms treaties. Uh, That has to be done by the U.S. So there are several levels of negotiations that have to go on. I really liked that that little clip. That was Medea Benjamin. She's a radical left-wing peace activist. Big hero of mine, though, because she would you know, like interrupt Dick Cheney and um, 
Donald Rumsfeld and people like that when they would do press conferences or make public appearances. And she would like jump out of the audience and be like, arrest the war criminal, stop the war. And I'm like, yes, love that lady. And she really highlights one of the, the big problems that we have right now in the, the war in Ukraine. It's that Ukraine can't stop. Like right. they, they're not allowed to, to stop. We won't let them. They are our bitch and they're going to fight. Uh, we, we refuse. Yeah. Wasn't it that Zelensky was already trying to early on in the absolutely. war? And we were like, no, we're walking out. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We refused to participate. And I, so that was a, a great clip that was, um, I think that was on the, um, useful idiots podcast, the useful idiots podcast. And, uh, and I got one more clip that I want to play about that. Now this is a clip from a podcast called Victoria's world. It was um, a mini series that was covering um, like basically what life was like in the Victorian era, England. And you know, there was a war that England fought with Russia over the Ukrainian territory. And um, so he, the, the podcaster had a historian on his podcast to talk about it. And right at the end of the podcast in 2020, he, he says something about the context of history, like what history means and how history changes. And he talks a little bit about the situation in Crimea. And I think it's like really, really poignant for this day and age. So you know, the point of, of history is to challenge some of the assumptions that people make about the past, to challenge old versions of the past, because we live in a different world. And history is how we explain to ourselves the way in which we got to this point. It is not about how the Victorians got to the end of the Crimean War. It's about where that fits in the journey that we've been on since then, right down to today. And any history that isn't addressed to the present is missing the point. History is not about the past. It's about the present. But it's about how the present understands the past. And that is ultimately the critical test of, of all new history. Does it help us to understand that process better than we would have understood it before? And that's the audience that we need to look to. We need to keep people thinking about the past because the past changes. The world we live in changes, and every time it changes, the past changes. And our understanding of the past and present are linked. If you were around in 2014 when the Russians seized Sevastopol and the Crimea back from the Ukraine, it was really important to know why it mattered to the Russians. Otherwise, Western diplomats might have made bad mistakes in their response to President Putin's grab. A million Russians died fighting with Sevastopol in two great wars. They were never going to give it up. And they would have gone to war over it. So it was best that we stood back on that one. Hmm. Fascinating. Oh, well, so again, Professor, that was, yeah, I know I, I should have tightened that clip yeah. up a little bit. How but the I president was, understands the past. It's interesting. And, and so isn't that fascinating? He, you know, he gives this context of said over a million Russians died to secure, secure Sevastopol. So for the national identity of Russia, you know, for what it means to be a Russian, the story that they're telling right now is that, that this is that story that they're telling. This is from 2020, right? So how, how prescient. The Russians 
took over Crimea because of those million Russians that died to secure Sevastopol. When they saw the writing on the wall that the situation in Ukraine was going towards the West, that the coup was happening, that they were going to install a pro-US government, that was the decision that Russia made. They're like, either we secure Sevastopol and our access to the Black Sea, or we're going to lose it. Yeah, and they were looking at history because it's not like it's a conspiracy theory. It's... (laughs) <laughs> and, but That's the, what the U.S. does. The reason why these two clips are so good together, the one with Medea Benjamin and this one, is that so it gives you this, this really fundamental conflict we have now is that on the one hand, we've got the Russians are not going to give up Crimea because if they give up Crimea, they have no access to their, their naval base on Sevastopol. Now, the Ukrainians are saying that they are only going to accept a peace that returns all of Ukrainian territory. Oh boy. Which goes back to before the 2014 coup and, and you know, those independence fights and all that crazy stuff that was happening. So because the United States is the only one who can negotiate on behalf of Ukraine (laughs) on so many different levels of the conflict that's going on. And because Ukraine now will not, negotiate for peace except for you know return of all the, the land and because russia will not return all the land because of they need access to their to the black sea to me i feel like we've created a situation that is guaranteed to get worse guaranteed to blow up and to to just get a lot lot worse before it gets before it gets better what what do you what, what's going on <laughs> I, see, I see chimp reach, reaching reaching for something i don't know if it's a pistol or or a knife like what do i gotta do i gotta worry right now <laughs> it's not a smooth transition if you're like what are you doing <laughs> oh there's no sound to this one. Oh, i was trying to get a nuclear blast sound <laughs> and so yeah so the 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 point that i had written on my notes then is oh ooh. Oh, that's actually the one in, in Russia. Okay, sorry. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what is World War Three? Because I, you know, I know that we named World War Two well after the fact of it happening. And in naming it, we also decided when it began and ended. So if you look it up, for the most part, um, World War Two happens after Japan had already taken over like a ton of Asia. And it's like, well, wait, how is that not World War Two? Right. It's like, oh, because, you know, it was not connected to the other stuff that was going on. Right. And it's it's such a strange and bizarre way that we tell history. Right. Like we, we tell it to give a certain kind of context or a certain kind of feeling, but it loses a lot of of the meaning that it had. So I think if, if you included Japan, you know, and it's an imperial expansion, for instance, as part of World War II, then it starts to beg the question of, well, like, when did Japan start doing that? Why did they do that? What put them in a position to be able to take over so much of Asia? And then it's like, okay, well, you start to answer that and you're like, oh, oh, it's because the rest of Asia was basically treated like a bunch of slave states, whereas Japan, because of their isolationist policies, avoided that. And then when they finally did have relations with the West, that was forced by Admiral uh, Commodore Perry in the 1800s, they got like a preferential trading relationship with the West versus 
the other nations. So they were able to like adapt and adopt modern technologies, contemporary technologies at the time in a way that none of the other nations in the area could. And then because of like their xenophobic, uh, ideology and, and culture, like that therefore made them think that they were better than everyone else. And that they had to, they had to civilize them the same way that the Romans felt like they had to civilize everyone or and, make you themselves know, rich. Opium. <laughs> <laughs> what did they have to do with the Japanese? Did they need opium? Well, I mean, with the Chinese being destroyed with the opium. Oh yeah. That was definitely a part of it. Right. I mean, yeah, absolutely. The Chinese were total, oh, poor guys. And, and is it, that's funny. Cause we were talking a little bit about that earlier. Is that what's happening to us with fentanyl? Are we being attacked by drugs and our, our addiction to drugs? Wouldn't be surprised if that's some Chinese billionaires uh, plan. Could just be some evil supervillain American. It's just a product, and there's a market. So, yeah, who cares? <laughs> as long as uh, there's new people, right? Like the old people die, but there's new people to replace them. So who cares? That's all that matters. That's business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not that kind of a business person. I think that's evil and terrible. I don't want to be a part of that in any way, shape, or form. I don't know if you saw, but our designer just. Hit us up with a ton of art. Oh man, yeah, it's funny. I was I was actually thinking of messaging him earlier. I see now we got thirty three messages. That's great. I'm glad. Um, it's exciting the the process of like, you know, consulting with him, giving him feedback on the different like sort of concepts. Are you going through it right now? You're oh, teaser. He's uh, I'm not going to look until after the show. Um, oh, he's, he's like turning his computer. Oh man. It's so cute. It's so cute. Oh, he just showed me like these two avatars and it, it's, let's see what's going to happen. We're going to have like, we're going to have a design aesthetic in the near future and you know, we'll be able to like we'll be able to create memes and, and then I die tomorrow. Oh, well that, that, that's sad chimp. I'm sad to, I'm sad to hear that. It happens. Well, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I know I've been uh, talking about my car every once in a while and you know, I've got this preoccupation of all the things with my transmission specifically because the car is a, a hybrid, like a hybrid, uh, gas electric hybrid. It's not, is it all? Yeah. And so it's got a big battery. And so the transmission is a special kind of transmission that can either turn the wheels because of the engine running or turn the wheels because of the battery. And the thing is that it's constantly trying to charge, like it's trying to charge the batteries when the engine's running and then it has to like determine when to turn the engine on and off. And there's like, there's, I feel like there's all these things going on. So I'm really paranoid about that somehow being a weak point in the car. Does it have, do those kind of hybrid cars have like two batteries? Like one that's for yes. high output and one that's for like... So there's one battery... Staying output? Th- there's one battery that's for, like let's say for starting the yeah. engine. And there's another battery that's for running the engine. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's noises. Like you hear the, the gears changing and stuff. And so there's certain like times when certain gear changes just sounds... It sounds odd and... But, but maybe it's just me paying way more attention than I used to because of all the trauma that I went through last year with the car. So 
And everything that you've been learning. Yeah, and everything <laughs> that I've been learning about engines and machines. So I did an oil analysis, but one oil analysis is not enough to really tell you anything. Like there were high levels of certain metals, but it was the, it was the metals that they expect to see a high amount of when you have a new engine block. Oh. So, you know, they'd have to get like two or three, you know, they have to, to get a history of samples to start seeing, okay, so I did an, uh, an oil change. So on the next oil sample, do I have like as, as much, you know, is like, is it still ele elevated levels or is it like lower now? So now like the levels of molybdenum have gone down. What are you going to do like every three months? I'm going to do it every 3000 miles. Oh, okay. So I'm waiting. I think it's like, I'm waiting for 92,000 miles and then I'll do it again at 95,000 miles. And then if at 95,000 miles, it seems like things are okay, then I'll probably extend it to like 5,000. So I'll go at a hundred thousand, then I'll stretch it out to like 7,000 miles instead of 5,000. If, if the, if the numbers look okay. So what they say is that, you know, you can change your oil as many times as you want. Like changing it too much is not a problem. It's not changing it often enough. But if you don't leave it in long enough, you can't get a good reading from the oil sample. Makes sense. So that's really fascinating. I'm, I think it's, it's a lot of fun. If you've never done an oil sample on your car and you have a vehicle that you want to keep for several years, like let's say you want to keep it for five or more years. I really recommend doing regular oil, oil sampling. It's, 30 bucks every time you do it and it can save you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars because you could find out things. How that do are... you send it out? Okay. So you have to buy a little pump and then they, they, they'll send you these free containers that you pump the oil into. So, you, you know, you take like the dipstick out and then you, you can run a hose right through the dipstick hole and then you pump, you know, about like, let's say uh, two thirds of the container full. It's just a little bit. So, you know, you could even do it in between changing. Like you don't have to change the oil after because you're not taking that much out. Then you send it to a lab. They do various different tests to it. You know, um, like they, they see at, uh, there's like a flashpoint test to see at what temperature it, it catches fire. They have viscosity testing. They've got, um, color testing to see the different substances and stuff in it. So it's really interesting. They give you a thorough report. You can call them and talk to one of their analysts about like the details of the report and anyone can do it. Like you don't have to know much about cars to do it. I, I, I really recommend it because what I found out is that the dealerships and most mechanics, they don't do that kind of a thing. And again, it's like, they, it doesn't matter to them because they're just going to replace something that's expensive. But the reason why you want to do it as an owner of a car is that it's going to warn you ahead of time. Okay. We're seeing a buildup of metals from, it could be, you know, what, whatever part of the engine, because I think I've mentioned this a few weeks ago, all the different parts of the engine have different compositions of metal. It's right. really interesting. So you can really get a sense of what's going wrong. Oh, it's your, you know, like, um, there must be vibration coming on the crankshaft because the, because of the kind of metal that's in it or, Oh, it, you know, it must be the, uh, Oh, if there's a leak, you know, if there's either an oil leak, if there's, um, a coolant leak, you know, they can see those things, all that kind of stuff. I, so there's a podcast called slick talk. <laughs> if you're a nerd like me, 
they, they, they release an episode like twice a month or something. It's really nerdy. They're usually pretty short. <laughs> so that's like my plug. Uh, you know, if you care about your car do, and they can do, um, you know, any kind of, any kind of motor, any kind of engine doesn't have to be a car. It could be a boat. It could be an airplane. It could be a generator. All these things have oil. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, I, you can also send in, um, they can do like an, uh, an oil filter sample analysis as well. <laughs> okay. I'm done ranting about, about car oil analysis. So when you mentioned you're going to talk about the election, I, I assumed you meant the Florida election. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> I, I, I knew that's, I was really vague just to Not throw you perfect. off. Yeah. <laughs> I, I knew, I knew I could pull that one off on you. But I'm sure we'll talk about that next week. We definitely <laughs> will because next week we will also have the results of the U S oh. elections. We're going to have you know all those congressional seats, the gubernatorial races. Let's see. We got, um, we got, oh my God, that flip-flopping bastard Charlie Crist versus Republican uh, Ron DeSantis. And we also have a couple of, of, of amendments, three of them, I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, they just tax stuff. Yeah, they want to raise, they want to raise money for like teachers. They want to give, they want to give um, a, a bigger homestead exemption for a bunch of public service yeah, workers. There's a bunch of different things. Um I remember I was going over it with my mom because she's like all passionate about voting. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I probably will vote because I, I do like to vote on these ballot initiatives, you know, because it gives you the opportunity to say yes or no. And I, I don't see how, how you can really argue against that. It's like, if I said no, you can't blame me if it passes. Like, how can you blame me just because I voted? That seems to be, I mean, even if I'm an anarchist, right? It's like, I said no. So if I didn't vote, then I didn't even say no. So I don't know, whatever. <laughs> it seems it seems like the least I can do, even if I'm an anarchist, is that if I have the opportunity to say no, I should damn well do it. Because the rest of the time, they're not listening to me anyway. And it says no more taxes. I say no more tax breaks. If you can do tax breaks, do it for everybody. I mean... Uh, okay. I mean, obviously like I agree with both of you, right? So no more taxes, but no more tax breaks. Like I don't, I don't think it's cool that people can find loopholes. Like, did I tell this joke last week? It was like the, the accountant calls tell jokes. <laughs> okay. So, you know, the accountant, the, the accountant calls his, his like super rich client and he's like, Hey, what would you prefer? Do you want to give $40 million to the IRS or do you want a new jet? And that's the, that's the whole joke, but you're not anywhere near the microphone. So you couldn't even fake laugh for me, you bastard. Are you trying to figure out the pads? <laughs> this is the wrong time to be doing that. This is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. And with that, we bid you good evening. This was Saturday Night Lit. Thank you so much for being with us. See you next week. Mm-hmm.